If you are a guest, thank you for being here with us. It's a joy to have you. Thank you for taking time to come. And uh, you could be many different places. The fact that you would worship with us means much. Um, I want to take a moment. Darla, where are you? Children's ministry. Darla, thank you for your prayer this morning. Um, thank you very much. Essentially, you prayed my sermon. So we can just close up and no. So thank you. Josh, thank you for your prayer. Just stirred my heart. I trust others as well. Um, and as I come into church, I regularly meet people who say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for this church. That's significant. That means much. I believe as goes prayer in the church, so goes the church, don't you? Prayer is significant, not only to our own personal lives, but to the life of the church. By the way, we do have prayer on Sunday morning. It takes place in the room uh, right off the back of the foyer. So if you would care to be part of that, you are most invited. That takes place, I believe they meet at 9.15, and Will Hagen leads that. Well, I don't know how your week went this week, uh, but since last week, I was asked to be a partner in prayer to folks who were facing some pretty life-altering, life-changing situations, situations that would affect them, situations they could not control, situations that were intimidating, situations that were challenging, and situations that they found themselves asking, why? Why? Why me? And so to us this morning, I want to ask the question, in the midst of serious life challenge, how do you find assurance? How do you find certainty? Where do you look? What do you turn to? What becomes your source of shelter, your source of peace, your source of refuge? Perhaps you can remember when the odds were stacked against you, perhaps even this morning. When short of a miracle, you saw no way out. Those things happen. In the midst of those, it can be discouraging. You can be tempted to fret, to give up, to lose hope. You can be tempted to wonder, is all this God talk true? Is God really there? Does reading and studying my Bible, does praying, does it really help? Perhaps you've been enticed by world's philosophies or worldly philosophies, even by some so-called Christian philosophies that only really distract you and tell you there's an easier road other than faith and obedience or a philosophy that, can tell you, that tells you you can rise above simply by some self-help method or, worse yet, just by giving a certain donation to a ministry. Perhaps the challenge has been so much for you that at the very core of your faith, you're tempted to even wonder, am I really, truly a Christian? I was outside Friday doing some yard work, 
And a very nicely dressed man kindly and gently approached me and gave me some, religi- some literature about a religion that was the true Christian religion. I thanked him and took it. And as I read the literature, it was alluring. It was inviting. And it was blatantly undermining of the truth of the cross of Christ and justification by faith in the Lord Jesus. And at that point, I said, Lord, please protect my heart, my family, and my flock from such things. Folks, when we hit uncertainty, when things tempt us to wonder, it's critical, it's crucial that we recall the work of Christ, that we tether our hearts to a doctrine that is true. We need to be reminded of the words at those times of an experienced eyewitness, one who's been through those battles, one who can see beyond the challenges, one who can guide our hearts in the midst of them and to give us marching orders as to what direction to go to. And that's why we have 1 John. In 1 John, the apostle seeks to establish and fortify a Christian's certainty and assurance in the Christian faith. So early in the letter, he reminds his readers that the message of Jesus Christ is the true message. It's authentic. It's true. He heard it with his own ears. He walked with this Jesus. He talked with this Jesus. The message comes directly from him. He saw him. He touched him. He ate with him. He testifies that this Jesus who he talked to is really, truly God. He is the God man. And incidentally, it's interesting that when a pastor is ordained, one of the things that is done, and this was just encouraging to my soul, is that hands are laid upon him. And it's interesting that those hands, now I have no way to go through history, but according to the way the church has set up each time a pastor is ordained, throughout the centuries, hands are laid upon them, which means they could be traced back to the laying on of hands of Jesus. John tells us that he saw him. His testimony is true. We can take it as an eyewitness. John knows we need to hear that encouragement. He's aware There are significant and powerful forces and philosophies today that will derail us, that will derail our faith, that will challenge our assurance, and will challenge our allegiance. And so as a good pastor, as the apostle, he seeks to encourage. And today he writes to remind us of what we have in Christ to remind us of what we have in Christ and to exhort us what that knowledge should do. Today we'll take a look at, again, his recounting of what we have in Christ. 
the glorious truth, and that to us what that should do. In short, he calls for us to see that the work of Christ cultivates assurance that we are in fellowship with God. The work of Christ cultivates assurance that we are in fellowship with God, and it compels us not to love the world. So today, when to look at Scripture, that will take us through that. But pause with me and pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come now by your Spirit, that you would walk among us, walk among the seats of this place. Lord, we ask that you would take our minds and that you would think through them, that you would take our hearts and you would set them on fire with love for yourself, that you would take our wills, that you would bend them to make them your own, that we would increasingly obey and increasingly live in such a way to bring glory to your name. And we pray for your name's sake. Amen. Well, our passage today digresses from a typical pattern of the rest of 1 John. It appears in difference, in feel, and in form. It does so, though, for effect. Let me read again the first three verses. Verse 12 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he repeats. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. John's not just waxing poetic or flowery, not wasting time on prose. There's a purpose for his writing. He knows that remembering, which is our job as Christians, remembering the saving work of Christ is designed to nurture, to cultivate assurance. Assurance that we are in fellowship with God. And that knowledge ought to compel us. That knowledge ought to compel us to love and to obey God. To love and to obey God above all other things. Especially the fleeting pleasures of the world. So that brings me to my first point, which is this. The work of Christ cultivates assurance that we are in fellowship with God. The work of Christ cultivates assurance that we are in fellowship with God. John is impressing upon his readers to remember how they have been gloriously saved by the work of Christ. He's impressing upon his readers the importance of remembering how they have been saved gloriously by the work of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning, I don't always feel saved. 
Sometimes I feel unsaved. Sometimes I feel, uh, think first about the failures of my previous day or previous week. And I'm tempted to go there first. John would exhort us that my thoughts need to go to the work of Christ. It's Christ's work that saves us. In the first section, he puts side by side a repetition. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Notice the glorious truth, and let's not gloss over the glorious truth that what John is trying to say. He addresses categories of children, fathers, and young men. Little children, your sins are forgiven. Fathers, you know him from the beginning. Young men, you've overcome the evil one. Try doing these by the way by yourself. He uniquely repeats the statements. Little children, you know the father. Fathers, you know him who's from the beginning. Young men, now he says, you're strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. Some scholars believe that these stages refer to physical stages. Other scholars say they are spiritual stages of spiritual maturity. Regardless of age or stage, brothers, it's important to recognize the truth that these things talk about. In Christ, our sins have been forgiven. In Christ, we know the Father. And in Christ, we've overcome the enemy. 1 John says, little children, as he often says, term of relational endearment, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Very important, folks, where you start your day. Very important where you start your theology. Are your sins forgiven because of your merit? Or are your sins forgiven because of him? Where do you begin? It determines where you end. If our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, they remain forgiven because of him. Isn't that good news? Our sins forgiven remain forgiven and not because of our merit. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Folks, that just is amazing truth that ought give us pause. I love the book of Ephesians. I love this verse. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. I did nothing to bring myself to salvation. A dead person doesn't somehow bring himself to life. God does that. The truth that we celebrate is that our sins forgiven means we've received the work of Christ. That's something we can think about and should think about daily. 
Next, he addresses the category of fathers. To them, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. John assures his readers again and again of what they are and who they are in Christ. But he says to the fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Think about that. If you're a Christian here, you know him who is immutable, who's unchangeable, who's eternal. So if I were to say to you, you know him or someone who is immutable, unchangeable, eternal, almost sounds like you're bragging. I remember working on a construction crew in high school. And we got into a conversation, I don't know how. But one of the guys, I was working with another guy and his father was up on the roof and he was listening to the conversation. And the guy started to say, so you think you know the God of the universe? You think you know this God who created everything? And he started to mock me. And he says, you think you know all that? And I said, yes. And then I heard this voice from the top of the roof. And I do too. (laughs) And I thought, yes. (laughs) Could sound arrogant. But friends, the truth is we have been brought into a revelation of God. If you sit here this morning and you know God, it is because of this truth that he invited you to come and to hear him. Nobody knows God simply because they decide to open a book or read the Bible and say, I want to know God. That's not the way you get to know God. God is holy. God reveals himself to he wills who he chooses based upon his own decision. He's not obligated to reveal himself to anybody. He doesn't have to. And yet he has chosen to reveal himself to his people. He is from the beginning. He is holy. He is to eternity. And he's revealed himself to us. Amen. We sing Sunday by Sunday, but really that kind of truth, as it starts to resonate, makes you want to sing all the time. It is true. God has revealed himself to us. So he says to the fathers, fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. We've touched eternity. Psalm 92 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth. When was that? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Friends, when you understand the God that you serve, a word should come to our hearts, and that word is he is holy. He is other. He is different. When you get to the place where you understand that you don't understand him, you're in the right place. You get to the place and you realize this one is other. And it should cause in our hearts a sense of not only humility, but a sense of trembling. 
we walk before a holy God. But that same God invites us to come, invites us to come into his presence. It's amazing that he has brought us. Thirdly, he speaks to young men and he says, you have overcome the evil one. You're strong and the word of God abides in you. It's clear John is saying that this is a reference to the enemy of our souls who is Satan. Satan seeks to undermine. He seeks to destroy our faith. Scripture's made clear that Christ has defeated him. On the cross, Christ has defeated Satan. But John also says that this overcoming of the young men, that this walking in victory of the young men has come because they have abided in the word of God. There's a connection, folks. There's a connection to abiding in the word. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Friends, we gain assurance, we gain strength, we gain confidence as we abide in the word, as it dwells in us. I don't know what your practice is of reading, studying, meditating, thinking about the word of God, but it is something that the scriptures teach we need for assurance. So in verses 12 through 14, the apostle reminds his readers that the glorious work of Christ on their behalf has happened and it should affect us. It should bring assurance. He knows that remembering and recalling the saving work of Christ cultivates assurance. I hope you're assured as you think on these. But that's not the only thing that recalling the work of Christ does. Because he goes on to verse 15. It ought to compel our obedience. So in the second part of our passage, if you'll look there to verse 15, he writes to sternly warn the Christians against an attitude of our hearts which can derail and which can erode assurance as well as obedience. That warning in verse 15 is, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Which takes me to my second point, which is, the work of Christ compels us not to love the world. The work of Christ compels us not to love the world. In verse 15, he gives us a warning, which appears abrupt and appears very, very direct. Now keep in mind, as he's talking about do not loving the world, he's talking to believers. He's talking to people who have fellowship with God, people who've been transformed by the Spirit of God. But we have a direct command here in verse 15 that says, do not love the world. And for clarity's sake, I looked at another translation 
if you will, a more modern English, which was translated, do not love the world. And so to be very accurate, I looked into the Greek, and it said, do not love the world. If our sins have been forgiven, if we have come to know the love of God, it should compel us, brothers and sisters, to love God and not love the world. John tells us that loving God and loving the world are antithetical. They're against one another. Let me be clear that it should be understood of what he says when he speaks about the world. He's not referring to the material universe or its contents or the people in the world. He's not saying that Christians should hate people or hate the world. Quite the contrary, we should steward the earth and love as God loves. We must care for our families, we must attend to our work, we must go about our daily business, we must live in this world. But both here and in other places in 1 John, we're told not to love the world. And as such, the world that is in opposition to God, the world that is in sinful rebellion to God. We're called to turn our hearts away from the world of mankind, which is in rebellion to God. We're called to turn our hearts away from world systems, philosophies, and pursuits that are in opposition to him. We're called to turn our hearts away from a world of temptation to sin, a world that seeks us to go away from God and to violate his command. Essentially, we're called to turn our backs on all that is in opposition to God. And John gives two clear reasons why. First, he says, do not love the world because to love the world and to love God are opposites. Can't be done. They're antithetical, incompatible. I cannot love God and love what is in opposition to him. A husband cannot properly love his wife and love another mistress. It cannot be done. And friends... The world can become our subtle mistress. It can creep its way in. And it violates our love for God. John mentions this throughout his letter. But to be truly born of God means that we love God and we love his people and we obey him. But secondly, why not love the world? Because simply, the world is passing away soon. And sometimes I like to hear and say, very soon, sooner than we think. We have to keep in mind, friends, that this world, its systems, its governments, its glory are passing away. Its momentary pleasures are passing away. Its glories and rewards, passing away. Its fame and fortune, passing away. And living for 
fame and glory and reward in this life is analogous to decorating and rearranging furniture on the Titanic. (laughs) Friends, we're called to guard our affections against all the world systems which are in opposition to God. And we are called to love God above all else, including our families, including ourselves. So let's ask ourselves a question. Do I find my heart this morning in contest with another love greater than God? Is there something compelling me or putting its talents in me to live or act in a way that is contrary to God's commands? Might be something that only you know. Something in your heart. John tells us to specifically check. Talks about the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. That which arises from within us, that which is opposed to God, an outlook that's self-centered. Is that something in your heart? Perhaps a way that is independent of God or a contradiction of God's commands or the lust of the eyes that which comes through the eyes from the world around it. It involves the greed to have what is seen, whether that's a greed of pornography, television, media. The system of the world is dedicated, dedicated, and millions and millions of dollars are spent on advertising to captivate our hearts and draw us in and make us feel unsatisfied until we can get what we want. The lust of the eyes, and thirdly, the pride of life. Pride in possessions, pride in status, and arrogance about one's standing or accomplishments in life. Friends, each of these becomes a snare. Each of these can become something that will erode our confidence, and worse, our obedience to God. It'll erode assurance, which erodes joy, which erodes faith. Do you struggle with any of that this morning? Have you found at some place in your own life that your heart has grown cold? Perhaps your heart has wandered into one of these areas. Perhaps the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. If that's you, let me encourage you to respond to how the good pastor John ends this section. If you look at verse 17, he ends with this. He who does the will of God abides forever. As a child of God, You have been born again to do the will of God. He has put his spirit in us to do his will. 
He's freed us from the chains of sin to do his will. If the word of God this morning is challenging your heart, is provoking you to respond, then let's obey the apostle. Better than that, let's obey God. Let's do the will of God. If you found that your heart has strayed or has been ensnared in affection leading you away from God, I urge you, brother or sister, to repent, to do his will. Believe, first of all, the truth that God in Christ has given you power over sin. Secondly, believe the promise of God, as we said earlier. He who confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive sins. He who confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive sins. But more than that, to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's believe the promise of God. Let's do the will of God. Friends, through Christ, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, that is eternal, that's never fading. This life is short. It's very temporary. Heaven is eternal. Heaven is forever. Friends, heaven is our home. We're not home. We're made for heaven. One day we will be home. This world is passing away. He who does the will of God will abide forever. We've been saved to do his will. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the reminder that you have taken all of our sins upon yourself. You have given us your righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. Lord, you have given to us heaven as our home and knowledge of the future of being with you. Lord, that knowledge should compel us and we ask that it would, that it would change our wills, that would cause us to walk in love of you and cause us to not love the world. So Father, strengthen our hearts. Strengthen our hearts to know what you want of our lives. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here who has found themselves ensnared, where their love for things supersedes their love for God, that you would grant to them repentance, that you would grant to them the confession to you and the experience of you washing them. Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.